Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. So the audio from last weekend at North Shore Vineyard only got half of the message, the last half. (laughs) So I have decided that I would just do a version of this message from within my studio. So you get to hear my lovely calming voice on a studio microphone, but there's not going to be any... No harassment from the North Shore Vineyard audience. Nobody yelling at me or throwing things. (laughs) title of this message is The View from Two Mountains. We're looking at the transfiguration of Jesus and how it parallels Moses going up to the mountain and bringing down the law. So let's do this. So I mentioned in my message last weekend that I've really been looking into the question of the relationship between mysticism and religion. Mysticism tends to speak of our experience of God, our experience of our union with God. Sometimes that experience may be very subtle, may just be sensing the peace of God in a moment when you really need it. Other times it may be much more profound as if the curtains of reality have been pulled back and you're experiencing God in a very profound way. Either way, I I think these experiences um, are not only available to Christians, but, but are very important in the spiritual journey. Religion, on the other hand, speaks of the rules, rituals, shared beliefs that Uh, are enacted within a community. So this would be participating in Eucharist. It would be praying together, be worshiping together. It would be, you know, the the creeds, the beliefs that, that kind of bind us. It is interesting when you look at the Bible, you, you can certainly get a window into both mysticism and religion. And I think both mysticism and religion are very important. I think there are some people that are more drawn to an experience of God that is much more emotional, which would lend to mysticism. Those who are are drawn to more of the intellectual, the logical side of it. But I think whichever way you're drawn to, um, you you just have to make sure that you don't cast off the other thing because sometimes in adopting mysticism, we just totally cast off religion. and, And sometimes in adopting religion, we totally cast off the experience of God. And really they are both necessary. And we find that, that in a sense in the Bible, they're, they're both voices that speak up at different times. I would say in the, in the old Testament, you, you, you have two main voices. You have the priestly voice, which gives us the law, the rules, uh, the rituals. And then you have the prophetic voice, which sometimes, um, contradicts the priestly voice. So you have this kind of tension sometimes that even throughout the Old Testament, it seems like these two voices may be at odds with one another. But I think it it, it speaks to the tension within our own life. Sometimes our faith becomes too much about 
you know, intellectual ideas or giving us, you know, mental assent to certain ideas when we really need a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes for those drawn into mysticism, they get so off into the experiences that, um, you know, they become so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good and they just float off into space. <laughs> but, in, but in the Bible, we can see, we can see this and, and mysticism really precedes religion. So when you look at the old Testament, go all the back, all the way back to the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in union with God. There's no rules. There's no law. It's just the experience of the divine presence right there. Fast forward a bit. We have Abraham. God approaches Abraham. Abraham is just a a Gentile, you know, a, a Sumerian. And God approaches him. He has an experience of actual face to face with God. Again, this is before there's any, any rules or any laws. And God just says, Abraham, I want you to follow me to a place that you do not know. And I'm going to make a people out of your descendants. And I'm going to bless the entire world through what I'm doing through your lineage. We go up further to Moses. Moses encounters God in the form of the burning bush. And he hears God calling to him. I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses asks, who do I tell him sent me? What, what's the name of the, the deity that is telling Pharaoh this? And God's answer is a strange one. Tell him, I am that I am sent you. <laughs> this is, this is a, a, reminds me of there was this Christian existential philosopher by the name of Paul Tillich a, a few decades ago who coined the phrase for referring to God as the ground of all being. And I, I, I like that. That's an interesting way to refer to God. But in a sense, that's what it reminds me of in this passage. The ground of all being itself says, let my people go. Then we see the Exodus. And Moses leads the children of Israel through, through the wilderness. And at one point, he goes up to Mount Sinai. And the, the top of the mountain is surrounded with the, the cloud of God's presence. And Moses is up there for weeks and... He finally comes down the mountain bearing these stone tablets containing the law. You've seen the movie with Charlton Heston. And at that point, we see the beginning of the religion now. So everything up to that point, people have had experiences with God. They've had mystical encounters with God. Now we see the religion. So the religion develops throughout the Old Testament. And really, you can see so much of the purpose of the religion in the Old Testament as being serving the purpose of setting the Hebrew people apart from the other people. Judaism was not an evangelistic religion. I mean, they weren't opposed to somebody becoming a Jew that wasn't born into that ethnicity, but it was a hard sell, you know, especially if you're a guy, because <laughs> you're going to have to be circumcised. And uh, you're going to have to follow all these rules. And they had a ton of them. It was, you know, if you were one of the other people groups around the ancient Near East, the Jewish people looked very different. They observed Sabbath. They had kosher laws. They had, you know, all these rituals. And not to mention, 
when it even came to their worship, you know, even when, in, whether it was the tabernacle or eventually Solomon's temple or uh, the, the second temple that Herod built, it would have been so odd to anybody in the ancient world to, to come into the temple because they would find this lavish temple that was, you know, ornate and empty. There was no statues. And, and to an outsider, they go, well, how, <laughs> where, where's the deity that we're supposed to worship here? But this, again, goes back to even uh, Moses' encounter. This God who they worship can't be represented by any created thing without diminishing who God is. So that's why when you, when they finally get the law, it's, you know, there's, they're, they're forbid to take the Lord's name in vain. So they actually got to a point where they wouldn't even speak the name of God or write it down. They wouldn't speak it except once a year during the high holy day, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, and then only the high priest, when he was in the Holy of Holies, would say the actual name of God. Everything else the was just a, a derivation of that name so they could kind of refer to it because they were afraid of taking the name of the Lord in vain. And they had no statues to represent God. So you'd go into the Old Testament temples and it would it would seem odd if you were an outsider. But it is, you know, it, it, it speaks, I think, to the to the mystical heart of Judaism. So the law is going on, and it's carving aside a people that are dedicated to God. God is doing a special thing with this one group of people. But it, you know, eventually, when you get towards the end of the Old Testament, you see the prophetic voice beginning to come forth in a big way. And the, the prophets often seem to contradict the priestly voice. So, for instance, you can find the prophet saying things like this, uh, speaking on behalf of God, I hate your Sabbath keeping. I hate your festivals. I hate all these, your, your worship songs, all these things that you're doing. And, and it seems to contradict things because it's like, well, you commanded us to do all this. But then, you know, the prophets go on, you know, instead of doing that, how about you take care of the poor and the oppressed and the stranger in your land? You know, live from your heart in a way that demonstrates the goodness of the God you say you serve. It's not enough to, to simply just go through these rituals if that's not on the table. And that's, the, that's kind of the problem where things were, were getting towards the end of the Old Testament was that they were following all the rules, but... Their lives really didn't uh, look very different. They, they weren't bringing honor to God because there was corruption in the government. They weren't taking care of the poor. There wasn't uh, justice happening. And then you get to the New Testament, and then there's quite a few examples of mysticism in the New Testament. One would be the day of Pentecost when the church is born and, and the the disciples have this amazing, crazy experience with God. You've also got like the book of revelation. You have Paul talking about uh, his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where he encounters God and is blinded by the light. But we're going to look into a passage today. This is quite a long introduction, but it, it's, we're going to tie it back around in the end, but we're going to look at it, another mystical religious experience from Luke chapter 9 verse 28 through 36 
Now, I'm reading from the message translation, so it may be a little different from your regular Bible translation, but I think it pulls out some of the nuance a little bit better. About eight days after saying this, he climbed, Jesus climbed the mountain to pray, taking Peter, John, and James along. While he was in prayer, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became blinding white. At once, two men were there talking with him. They turned out to be Moses and Elijah. And what a glorious appearance they made. They talked over his exodus, the one Jesus was about to complete in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter and those with him were slumped over in sleep. When they came to rubbing their eyes, they saw Jesus in his glory and the two men standing with him. When Moses and Elijah left, Peter said to Jesus, Master, this is a great moment. Let's build three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He blurted this out without thinking. And while he was babbling on like this, a light, radiant cloud developed enveloped them. As they found themselves buried in the cloud, they became deeply aware of God. Then there was a voice out of the cloud. This is my son, the chosen. Listen to him. When the sound of the voice died away, they saw Jesus there alone. They were speechless and they continued speechless. Said not one thing to anyone during those days of what they had seen. This is a pretty interesting story because throughout most of the ministry of Jesus, even though Jesus has done several miraculous things, he's healed the sick, set people free from things that were tormenting them, calmed the storm, fed the 5,000. Even though he has done these things, he has not done it the way that your typical televangelist on Christian TV would. You know, he's been pretty low key about it. And uh, chances are, if you, you would have seen Jesus in a crowd, you, he wouldn't have stood out. But here in this moment, Jesus takes his disciples up to the top of this mountain. And reality, as they know it, is, is pulled back, the veil of reality. And they see Jesus as he truly is. They see his divine nature revealed. It is interesting when you look at this story, because it really is a parallel to the Moses story. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain and he's surrounded by the cloud of God's glory for for several weeks before coming down with the law. In this one, we see that Jesus is transfigured, which just means, you know, his his appearance became shining, you know, radiant. And he's there with Moses and Elijah. And 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 the symbolism is is uh not hard to miss here that basically Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. His glory is far greater than the law and the prophets. They are, uh, they are signs that have been pointing to him. They are foreshadowing Jesus, but now the reality has arrived and it's far, uh, far greater far more glorious than even Moses and Elijah, which is interesting because, you know, one of my favorite sayings of Jesus, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, these are the two greatest commands. In fact, they sum up all of the law and the prophets. So it, we see Jesus 
the reality that sums up the law and the prophets. And we even see Jesus's teachings as summing them up. So it's a new day here. And we're getting a, a picture of that on this mountain because what happens after Moses and Elijah leaves, we see the cloud of God's presence, the same cloud that we see back in the Old Testament surrounds the top of the mountain. And we hear a voice. This voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And you can compare these two stories. Um, you know, in, in, in the first story, the Moses story, Moses has this encounter with God, but he comes down with the law. Jesus is affirmed by God. God's not giving Jesus a bunch of laws. Jesus is the reality. He is the substance. Now, it's interesting in this passage as well, because the disciples, they fall asleep before all the action happens. <laughs> and they wake up to it. And I think that I think even symbolically, this this speaks of waking up enlightenment, so to speak, of actually seeing Jesus transfigured. So it is this waking up to this reality that Jesus is the point of it all. But this is also where the story story gets a, a bit interesting, because if we continue on with it in Luke, it says, and when they came down off the mountain the next day, a big crowd was there to meet them. And a man called out from the crowd, please, please, teacher, take a look at my son. He's my only child. Often a spirit seizes him. Suddenly he's screaming, thrown into convulsions, his mouth foaming, and then it beats him black and blue before it leaves. I asked your disciples to deliver him, but they couldn't. And Jesus said, what a generation. No sense of God. No sense of focus to your lives. How many times do I have to do these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsions. Jesus stepped in ordered the vile spirit gone, healed the boy, and handed him back to his father. They all shook their heads in wonder, astonished at God's greatness, God's majestic greatness. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he brings the law, <laughs> which will define the people of, of Israel uh, for centuries through the Old Testament. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, though, what does he do? He brings freedom. And I think this whole story gives us all these windows into uh, the ministry of Jesus. There's another passage from the lectionary that speaks of Paul's interpretation of, I really think Paul is, is looking at, at both of these stories. He's certainly looking at the Moses story, but I think by what he writes, he's also looking at the story of the, the transfiguration as well. So in 2 Corinthians 3.12 through 4.2, the Apostle Paul writes this. With that kind of hope to excite us, nothing holds us back. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide. Everything out in the open. He wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away. And they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then and they don't notice it now. Don't notice that there's nothing left behind that veil. Even today, when the proclamations of that old bankrupt government are read out, they can't see through it. Only Christ can get rid of the veil so that they can see for themselves that there's nothing there. 
Whenever, though, they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it. All of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Since God has so generously let us in on what he's doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes, and we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. I know that's a long passage, but <laughs> this speaks of another story, another aspect of the of Moses going up on Mount Sinai. Moses would come down and it said that Moses's face was shining. He was transfigured in a sense, you know, he was around the presence of God. He would come down and he's glowing in the dark. And so Moses began wearing this veil so that people, you know, probably initially so he wouldn't like a freak, look like a freak, but also because the glow would wear off over time. And so, you know, people start like judging his spiritual meter by like, oh, well, Moses isn't glowing so much. I don't know if God's with him. <laughs> so it, 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 it had this kind of dual purpose. He was kind of insecure about it. And also he could maintain, you know, his spiritual status without people questioning it. But the apostle Paul, who by the way, was an expert in the law. I mean, he was a Pharisee before he encountered Christ. <laughs> he had studied the scriptures. He was uh, no slacker on that end. And he uses this, this veil as symbolic of just relating to God through the law. See, when you look at the Old Testament, Moses, I mean, particularly the Exodus story, Moses was the only one who had a relationship with God. Children of Israel, their relationship was with doing the law. <laughs> but they're like, Moses, you go up and talk to God. We don't want to have anything to do with God. He is scary. And so it was, it was very much just Moses who had the relationship. And Paul is kind of speaking that to here. He says that he says he wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away. And they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then. And they don't notice it now. Don't notice that there's nothing left behind the veil. Even today, when the proclamations of that old bankrupt government are read out, they can't see through it. Only Christ can get rid of that veil so that they can see for themselves that there's nothing there. Whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are face to face. And this is kind of the point Paul is getting at, which is really the point in the transfiguration story. <laughs> Being face to face with God is much better 
than a mediated relationship through the law. Jesus is the reality that has come here. And as we experience our union with God through Christ, as we face God, as we turn our attention to God, not just trying to follow a bunch of rules, but as we truly face God in Christ, we experience freedom, which is exactly what happened when Jesus came down the mountain. It's the first thing he does. He brings freedom to this young man who was tormented by spirits. That is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And look, you know, as I was saying in in the message from a week ago, you know, when Jesus gives some teachings on how to practice doing good for others, how to practice prayer and how to practice spiritual disciplines like fasting. He doesn't criticize the disciplines themselves. He criticizes the motive behind it. Jesus says, if you're just a play actor, if you're just trying to look spiritual, if you're just trying to look compassionate, if you're just trying to look like you're doing all this stuff for God, then that's your reward. You are getting the reward of somebody who's done a great job of acting. Yay. But he doesn't actually criticize doing good or prayer or fasting. He, he, he gets at the motive for it. And I think looking at this story, we need to see it as an invitation into relationship with God. And I love what Paul says as we worship God, we become transfigured. We, our lives begin to shine with the brightness of God. We're living in a different way and we're being shaped by that. That's a lot better than just trying to abide by just a bunch of empty rules. And if you're living from that motivation, if you're truly trying to connect with God, truly trying to turn your face towards Christ, then when it comes to prayer, when it comes to doing good for others, when it comes to your own spiritual disciplines, Now those things actually arise out of your relationship instead of becoming your relationship. So my prayer today for you and for me both is that we could turn our attention to God. Like the disciples up there on the mountain, we could wake up and see God. You know, one of the, you know, maybe one of the simple things you can do right now as we enter into Lent is to maybe just try the discipline of taking five or 10 minutes a day to just be quiet, to set the cell phone aside, turn off the TV, turn off the computer, go sit outside for five or 10 minutes, just get quiet and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And if you have any thing that is weighing on your mind that you just acknowledge it, hand it over to Jesus, (laughs) just Try to learn how to face God. I'm not talking about going through a bunch of motions, but just learning how to sit and face God. And then if you want to enter into some spiritual disciplines, then maybe that'd be a good time to do that. But my prayer is that we can learn how to do that more in a world that is so chaotic and frenzied that we can learn how to get quiet, turn our attention to, to the Lord and experience the freedom that comes when we do that.